Scripture reading for this morning's lesson will be from the, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's good to be here with you and to have this opportunity uh, to speak with you. Uh, I, as, if you've not already turned there for the reading, I encourage you to turn to Joshua 20, 24. As we uh, look at this text that has been read for us, and you think about this particular this particular passage, and it's a very familiar one to us. Many of us probably have this on a sign somewhere inside our house, probably over the front entrance as you go out the door, and uh, it's typically where it shows up. Um, but I, I think maybe it's worth sometimes us really digging into the context and what all's going on for Joshua to make this statement and when he's making this statement and why he needs to say what he says here, particularly in verses 14 and 15. And as we do that, I want us to recognize that Joshua's words, this commitment that as for me and my house, or my Bible's going to say as for me and my family, is relevant to us regardless of where we are in life's journey. Uh, the end of the chapter tells us that Joshua died at the age of 110. It is suspected that uh, Joshua's uh, speech here in chapter 24 was probably in the last year or two of his life. And so the image I always have of Joshua here is he is grandpa sitting in his favorite chair around all of his grandkids giving those life lessons that he wants them to hear. And I think for Joshua especially, given everything that he has seen, is wanting to make sure that his children, whether they are uh, his biological descendants or these people he has been looking after for the last 30 to 35 years, uh, if he is of a similar age to Caleb, 
that they that they're going to move forward. Remember that Joshua himself was one what was an exception of of the tribes who were numbered in the census in Numbers 1, Joshua and Caleb were the only men over the age of 20 at that time to enter the land. So he's got a few years on most everybody. And, but these words are relevant to us and something for us to think about regardless of where we are in life's journey, whether uh, we have children under our roofs. Uh, these, these words have become more relevant to me in the last uh, almost two years since our daughter was born. Uh, these words are relevant to those with adult children who may have moved out of that direct, you're under my house, you're under my roof stage and into more of the giving advice perhaps from afar those with grandchildren, those who have yet to begin this journey of raising children and having families and deciding how you're going to set yourself up for success. But what can we learn from this? What can we learn from what Joshua has to say? And uh, looking at this text, we'll read it again, to therefore fear the Lord, he says. Fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today. Which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River? Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? And Joshua says, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. The thing for us to keep in mind, if we think of nothing else and we remember nothing else this morning, is that God's people put God first in their families. And as we get into what Joshua had to say in these two verses, the thing that is, is brought to mind, and this, this stuck out to me a couple years ago uh, when I was teaching Joshua one time, is that there are always idols that need to be removed. Uh, in, in you know, when he says, get rid of the gods, now, what, what does that mean? There's, there's an implication here that if Joshua is telling them to get rid of these gods, that those gods are there. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Israel for its entire existence, even going back to the man whose name was changed to Israel, has wrestled with getting rid of idols. You go all the way back to Genesis and to Genesis 31 when Jacob and his family are fleeing from Laban 
and Laban catches up to them and is doing a search because uh, he says, you've taken the household idols. And so Laban goes and searches the tents. He goes into Jacob's tent, to Leah's tent, to the two concubines. He finds nothing. He leaves Leah's tent and says he went into Rachel's tent. And it says, now Rachel had taken Laban's household idols put them in the saddlebag of the camel, and sat on them. And so she is hiding uh, the idols, keeping them, uh, would go on to make an excuse for why she could not get up for Laban to search uh, for those idols. But then later on, in chapter 35... Jacob specifically tells his family, get rid of these foreign gods. Over and over throughout Israel's history, the people have to be told to get rid of the, the foreign gods. This statement here in this statement here in Joshua 24 is, is nothing new. It's not the first time. It's not the last time. You go on to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and the people are kind of having a little bit of a renaissance after, at the end of the time of the ju judges, and Samuel says, okay, if you're serious about this, here's what you have to do. You have to get rid of these idols. And so there are always idols that have to be removed. Now, what about us? Are there idols in our lives that have to be removed? And maybe we're not talking about statuary. You know, we're not talking about bronze and silver and gold and wood statues that we're literally worshiping. But even in our lives, in our families, there are idols that we've got to get rid of, that we have to put away. What things do I become defensive about? If, if you were to come to me and say, I really don't like you doing that, or I'm not sure that this is a good idea for you to do, am I going to become defensive about that? Am I going to try and put it back on you, or how dare you question me about this? If that's our reaction to something, to some activity that we do, to something that we participate in, to something that we buy. That may be a sign that there's an idol in our life that needs to be put away, that needs to be gotten rid of. Are there things in our lives that take precedence over other things? That you know, we say, okay, we're going to, to do this, this, and this, but then there's this other thing that comes up. That we look at it like, oh, there's no way I can't do this. And outside looking in, maybe we realize, you know, this, this may not be as big of a priority, but there's this emotional clinging to that there's no way I can't do this. If that's not something that God has told us takes precedence, 
that may be an idol that has to be gotten rid of. And for that matter, are there things that I just, I just can't imagine not giving up in my life? Like, I, I, I just... I, 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 just, I just can't conceive of not subscribing to this or not doing this thing or not whatever it is. If it's something that we just think, okay, there, there's just no way I could ever give this up. If it's not something that God has told us we can't give up or shouldn't give up. Then that may be an idol that we need to get rid of. That may be an idol that's going to be a stumbling block to our family. And, but we get rid of them. We take a good hard look and we get rid of those things because God's people put God first in their families. But if we don't do that, if we aren't getting the idols out of our lives, what we find out is that our children may stumble over the things that I've stepped over. So he's told them, get rid of these idols, get rid of, rid of the gods. You know, the thing about that your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt. These, these idols have been around for a while, and they keep coming back. But one of the things that we see as we look at Israel's history, and it doesn't take very long after this point, is that these idols become a stumbling block to the next generation. In Judges, after the people have just not really done what they're supposed to do, God tells them, He says, you're not supposed to be making a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars. But you've not obeyed me. You've not gotten rid of the idols. He says, therefore, I now say, I will not Drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a trap for you. There were consequences to not getting rid of the idols. Consequences that may not have affected those people as much. The, the generation that took the land as much. But that seriously affected their children. And the book of Judges says note that you know, Joshua sent the people away, the Israelites went to take possession of the land. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. And during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua, they had seen all the Lord's great works that he had done for Israel. But what happens after a few funerals? That whole generation, verse 10 tells us, that whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation arose that, who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. They had, they had not personally seen those things unfold. 
They didn't see the crossing of the Jordan. They hadn't seen all the things that the Lord had done in, it, in the wilderness or even in Egypt. And so those Israelites, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. Because the, pa because the parents had failed to finish the job of getting rid of the idols, the idols were still there for the children to stumble over. Now what are, <clears throat> what are some things that might end up in this category? What are some things that, that I, may not be a big deal for me or seem like a big deal for me in my faithfulness, but are going to create problems for my children? Are there things that I just hand wave away? When you know, the, there are things that I, I do just because. And outside looking in, they don't completely make sense, but I just, oh, it's, it's okay. There's a good chance that that's something, especially if it's something of a spiritual nature, that's something our children are going to see and they're not going to know what to do with. Because they don't understand why we're doing that. And in fact, they may ask me about things, and I don't have a good answer for it. In some of what is written about why children as they grow up leave the faith, one of the things that is commented on, and this is not just about parents, this is also talks about Bible classes and such things, but when there are questions about why this, whether it's about something of an evidentiary nature, you know, creation and all that, or if it's something of why, why do we do this thing? Unanswered questions are, is cited as one of the things that leads to children chewing, choosing to abandon their faith. And so if there's something that I don't have a good answer for, and it may be that's a perfectly legitimate thing that I need to get a good answer for, But it may also be that it's something that the reason I don't have a good answer for it is because there's not a good answer to be had. And it's something that I'm just stepping over that it's going to be a stumbling block. But what about my example? Am I, are, are there things about which I'm inconsistent in serving the Lord? One thing children are very good at is figuring out inconsistency. Realizing that this doesn't match up with this. And that's a problem for them. And so, how they see us act in one 
area versus how they see us act in some other area. Are we consistent with that? Or are they going to look and say, well, why were you... Why were you different here versus there? Why were you talking, talking so nicely to this person over here, but the moment you got in the car, you couldn't, say, you couldn't say one good word about them? And the other thing to think about, and we see this throughout Scripture, that we, gotta, that we have to ask ourselves in the things that we do and the things that in our lives that could be a stumbling block, are there some influences in my life that keep me doing what I need to do that my children won't have? We see this going back to Judges 2. We're talking about they were the children of Israel were faithful all the days of Joshua. Think about that. When you have somebody like Joshua, who is the leader, the figurehead of the nation, the one that you see, and he says things like he says here in Joshua 24, it's a lot easier to keep faithful in spite of all that's going on in the periphery. But once Joshua's out of the picture, once those elders of the people who were, who were behind Joshua are out of the picture, those influences are gone. There's nothing left that's keeping the children from stumbling over the idols. There may be things about how we were raised that are just absolutely ingrained in us to the point where it would be inconceivable for us to do anything other than this. Do our children have that same influence on their lives or in their lives? Think about when people have gone astray because that, that guiding influence is gone. I, I think about Joash, who was faithful all the days of Jehoiada the priest. But the moment that Jehoiada is gone, things start to go south for Joash. As parents, our job is to, as much as we can, keep the stumbling blocks out of our children's lives, and particularly to make sure our lives don't become a stumbling block to them, because God's people put God first in their family. Moving on in the, in, in the text to verse 15, one of the things Joshua wants them to realize is the superiority of God's way. He asked them this question. 
Which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River? Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? Now, think about the context of Joshua asking this. And the gods beyond the Euphrates River, those were the same gods that Abraham left to follow the Lord. Their ancestor Abraham had already made a choice about that and took steps to make sure that, to, to, to limit the influence that those gods could have. When he was getting a wife for Isaac, he sent his servant to get the wife from the family so that Isaac wouldn't get back to the land and decide to stay there and stay in it and everything that was included in that. And, and, and so you see the effort made not to go back that way. And so Joshua, by saying, you know, are, are you going to serve the, the, the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River? He's, he's saying... Do you really want to go back to the same gods that your ancestors stopped worshiping? And then he says, or how about the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living? Keep in mind that in this time, wars between nations and between cities were viewed as wars and contests between the gods that each group served. And so if, if I conquered your city, that was a sign that my God is superior to your God. And so Joshua is saying, essentially, do you want to worship the God or the gods who were defeated by the Lord? Do you want to worship a loser? And Joshua is pointing out that the way that, the, that serving the Lord is far better than either of those options. Serving the Lord as poorly as Israel did it is what got them to this point as a nation. And so we have to and I have to recognize that God's way is superior. So I have to ask myself, am, am I still clinging to things? Am I still clinging to things from the world's way of living? For those who, uh, as we say, grew up in the church or grew up in, in, a, in a Christian household, this may not be as a parent. But there are things about the way the world does things and the world's logic that we come to and we cling to. And we say, I'm not sure I want to do it the Lord's way because this reason, because it's easier to do it this way. Or 
this way seems more fun or, or whatever the reason is. But are there things I'm still clinging to instead of committing fully to doing things the Lord's way? And are there some outside influences that are taking priority? There are a lot of people in this world who are happy to give you their opinion about what you ought to be doing in terms of raising your family. They are even happier for you to pay for the privilege of them telling you how you ought to be raising your family. Most of them, even perhaps those who are at least claiming a Christian worldview, most of them are applying the world's way of thinking in some respect to how you ought to raise your family. We have to recognize that God's way is best because once again, God's people put God's first put God first in their families. And then finally, <clears throat> for us to do this, to put God first in our families, we must recognize that apathy, indifference, is not an option. Joshua, then and there, makes the commitment, makes the stand, as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. For him, there's no negotiation about this. There's no, we'll wait and see how this turns out. There's no, we'll see what our kids want to do when they get older. Of course, he probably has grandchildren or great-grandchildren by this point, being a hundred and some odd. But, and even more, from the perspective of that older patriarch, there's, there's no other alternative for him. He said, you know, fine, if you don't want to serve the Lord, if it's not pleasing to you to serve the Lord, well, make your choice. Joshua says, I've made my choice. And so what does it mean for us to make the choice? And to, to take the stand that says, as for me and my family, as for me and my house, we will serve or we will worship the Lord. First thing is, am I proactive or reactive when it comes to my family's relationship with God? Am I taking steps in advance to set my family up for faithfulness? Or am I waiting till a crisis comes up 
to figure out what the Lord would have me do <clears throat> without realizing that what the Lord would have had me do was about five steps up the path. And then bottom line, for particularly for those in this position, do I have a plan? Do I have a plan for how I want to raise my children? Raising children to serve the Lord is not for the faint of heart. I'm almost two years into that and still trying to figure out what that means in a lot of situations. Unfortunately, it seems that probably it seems like by the time we get that figured out, we're no longer in that position. But God's people put God first in their family. We don't leave it up to chance. We don't leave it up to what might happen, you know, to, to, well, what happens, happens. We don't make it a multiple choice quiz. There is only one choice. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. But more generally, and as we close, uh, overarching everything is not just that God's people put God first in their families, God's people put God first. That is the thing that Israel wrestled with throughout its entire existence as a nation is putting God first. Not turning aside to, uh, to idols, not turning aside to trying to be like the nations around them, but putting God first. And that's what we're called to do each and every day. Have you put God first in your life? Have you made that initial commitment to say that God is going to be first in my life? To be baptized for the remission of your sins? Have you kept that commitment? That to kept the commitment to put God first? If there's something we can do to help you with that commitment, let us know as we stand and as we sing.